Our next two episodes will address the harms of drugs given to military members under the guise of protection from chemical warfare in the case of Gulf War illness and anti-malarials for soldiers deployed to regions known for malaria. In both cases, these drugs were dispensed without informed consent and with a knowledge of the potential harms they might cause to military personnel, including long-term health effects. For most of the last century, drugs such as quinine, chloroquine, and metfloquine, or larium, have been used as a method of controlling malaria. In prior episodes, we have discussed the dangers of fluoroquinolones, levoquin, cipro, and aliflex. These anti-malaria drugs exhibit similar toxicity patterns to the fluoroquinolones. In fact, the pharmacore of the fluoroquinolones and chloroquine are very similar, and the origins of the quinolone class are from the use of chloroquine as an anti-malarial. Today, we will focus on the anti-malarial drug metfloquine, or larium, a drug known to have long-lasting and horrific adverse effects. Since the Food and Drug Administration approved larium in 19. 89, more than 20 million people have received it, according to its maker, Roche Pharmaceuticals. Numerous military members from around the world ordered to take larium, and I stress ordered, with no informed consent and no information regarding the risk associated with the drug, have experienced and continue to suffer from a host of toxic effects, including neuropsychiatric adverse effects such as psychosis, suicidal thoughts, insomnia, depression, hallucinations, and unusual behavior. These effects are very similar to our prior guest's toxic reactions to fluoroquinolones. These adverse effects have been connected to various acts of violence towards others and suicidal ideation for soldiers ordered to take them. Recently, we had an opportunity to sit down with Andrew Marriott, the author of a shocking book documenting his and his fellow soldiers' experience with larium while in the British Army, and his efforts over the last decade to seek answers and acknowledgement for those harmed by the drug, only to uncover a history of institutional denial, deception, and greed. I encourage all of our listeners to read Andrew's book, If You Wake at Midnight. We'll put a link up on the website. Awareness is power. And it could save your life. Welcome to our podcast, No Risks. I'm Heather. And I'm Lee. We're two moms, a lawyer and a nurse, who were brought together by a misfortune. Both our children were harmed by adverse drug reactions. The purpose of this podcast is to educate people on the risk of any health treatments you put in or on your body. We feel if we'd been properly informed and been our own experts, our children would not have been harmed. In today's world, with medicines being incentivized for profits, you need to educate yourself. Know the risk of health treatments, and it can protect yourself and your loved ones from being harmed. Before we start our interview today, I just want to share a little bit more about our guest, Andrew Marriott. Andrew was an infantry soldier in the British Army for over 30 years, with service in Northern Ireland, Bosnia, the former Soviet Republic of Georgia, the Middle East, and West Africa. 
He was awarded a commendation for devotion to duty as a platoon commander and was later made a member of the Order of the British Empire. While serving in Sierra Leone, he was required to take the anti-malaria drug Larium, a drug now largely abandoned because of its disturbing and dangerous side effect profile. The drug caused him a range of injuries, the most chronic being a condition diagnosed as nightmare disorder. In 2015 and 2016, he made major contributions to the British Parliamentary Inquiry into the Ministry of Defense's use of Larium. That inquiry caused the Ministry of Defense to be condemned for its failure in its duty to its personnel and veterans. It also called for Larium to be regulated to a drug of last resort. Andrew has since gained a doctorate in archeology span the only student to have been awarded the departmental prize at the University of York for dissertations at degree and master's level. His research has been published in several academic journals and the national media. He spends the rest of his time as an advocate for British veterans and their next of kin whose lives have been devastated by Larium. In that cause, he has appeared on multiple broadcasts on the BBC TV and radio and other national news programs, while also contributing to articles carried by Britain's leading newspapers. His 2022 book, If You Wake at Midnight, The Larium Wonder Drug Scandal, chronicles the development and marketing of Larium against the background of people who courageously share how this psychotropic drug changed their lives forever. He is married with two adult daughters and lives in the north of England. Well, we have a wonderful podcast today. I am so excited to have our guest on today, uh, Mr. Andrew Marriott. Um, he's the author of a book, um, just an exceptional book, um, If You Wake at Midnight, and it discusses um, the, the drug larium that um, is... I believe in some cases we'll let Mr. Marriott speak to this um, still being used um, throughout the world to address malaria. Um, we're just really happy to have him here with us today and to kind of unfold this discussion. Um, lots of, of points in this book come up and um, really hit Lee and I in regards to the toxic effect of this drug and um, some of the adverse effects our children went through with fluoroquinolones. Um, so I want to um, say good morning to um, Andrew. Thank you for being with us this morning. And I think it would be best, I mean, this is just an incredible, in, incredible book, incredible advocacy, um, disturbing um, just, it, it really touched me watching my son, what he went through and your discussion of the widows and the soldiers that were affected by this drug. So I just want to give you kind of an opportunity to give us an overview of, of the book and um, just what, what made you um, want to put this down, you know, on pen and paper and what made you really pursue this issue of larium? Well, thank you very much um, for that very kind introduction and also for the opportunity to be able to, to speak today. Um, I guess it's worth saying from the start that I come from 
a military background. I spent 35 years in the British Army, and it was while I was serving in West Africa that I was required to take the anti-malarial drug Larium. Um, it's a very controversial drug. Um, it was the default drug for the British Armed Forces serving in, in malarial areas such as West Africa, Afghanistan, and other tropical parts of the world. Um, there were other safer alternatives. One of the problems with the drug, um, which I think is probably spreads over into other medications is that it has a range of um, neuropsychiatric side effects. And these are particularly marked in larium compared with the much safer alternatives for um, other anti-malarial drugs that are freely available on the market. I took the drug for almost a year while I was in Sierra Leone. So I consumed probably the better part of um, 50 pills on, on a weekly basis. Um, and I suffered a number of side effects. Um, these initially ranged from um, disturbed sleep to nightmares to physiological problems such as balance and vision. Um, other things such as restlessness and confusion, anger management, um, and problems with my sleep that manifested themselves in, in a number of ways. And I quickly realized that a lot of other members of the force that, um, that I was serving with in Sierra Leone were suffering similar side effects. Um, in fact, a large number of the personnel were throwing away the pills rather than comply with the regulation that you had to take the antimalarials. That actually put me in slightly difficult um, moral position because I was leading a small team of officers and warrant officers from um, the UK, Canada and the United States. And as the team leader, of course, I had a responsibility for their health. Um, and you have to take issues like uh, malaria very seriously in those parts of the world. And the strain of malaria there is a particularly nasty one. So the chain of command required that um, as you would take other protections, such as um, sleeping under a mosquito net, um, covering up bare skin during the day to um, avoid being bitten, um, wearing creams and using insect repellent. So we were required to comply with the weekly drug regimen. Um, it was... Um, quite a surprise to me to see the range of side effects that were appearing among my peers and the soldiers that we were leading. Um, we had been warned that there would be some side effects, but these would pass, uh, they would not be permanent, um, and that the more serious of them would only manifest in about one in 25,000 personnel. So those odds seemed quite good. Um, in fact, they were all far from the truth. Um, what I discovered at the end of um, my tour um, was that there were safer alternatives available that um, did not cause these range of, um, of side effects. 
Um, and there was no need for us to have um, been using this drug. That had put me in the position whereby, as a leader, I was requiring my soldiers in the same way that I wanted to make sure that they were that they were safe, that their vehicles were properly maintained, that they were drinking clean water, and so on. That they were complying with all of the the health and the health requirements. So, as a commander, I would be checking to make sure that they had taken their anti-malarial medication. Uh, what I didn't realise was that um, I was complicit, if you like, in um, a much wider scheme of enforcing one drug when there are safer alternatives. One of the things that probably ultimately motivated me to to write the book was that senior medical officers that um, I approached early on during my tour in Sierra Leone told me that um, the drug was safe and they told me that there was no alternative for the strain of malaria that we were faced with. That was manifestly untrue. Um, we didn't have the opportunity back then in the early 2000s to easily go on to, to Google and check all of these things. Um, so I rather took the word of um, senior medical officers that this was the most appropriate um, drug for the theatre of operations. And I was told that there had been... Um, a risk assessment conducted by the Surgeon General of the British Armed Forces. So, you know, that is the top of the tree um, in the in the medical profession inside the Army, the Air Force and the Navy, and that he had determined that that was the drug that we should take. There's another difficulty that arises with this, because when you determine that you're only going to use one drug, you're denying all of those who in the first place, might be contraindicated to that drug and therefore it shouldn't be suitable for them in the first place. But if they're also presenting with difficult side effects, you ought to be giving them an alternative um, anti-malarial prophylaxis. Well, that didn't happen. Um, the regime was forced. So there was a moral issue and there was a serious medical issue and when I returned home, um, I knew that there was something wrong with me. I had had a number of individual events during that year. For example, I explain in the book, um, I was driving home on um, a period of leave one day when I pulled over at uh, a service station for a break, rested for 10 minutes, fell asleep, woke up. I had absolutely no idea who I was or where I was or what I was doing in that car. Now, it passed quite quickly. But again, as I say in the book, if it was only 60 seconds, that's a long time. Just count slowly to 10. And even that sort of period when you've got no idea who you are, you have effectively a memory wipe. But thankfully, in my case, my memory came back quite quickly. Um, there have been other instances, particularly... Um, amongst um, American citizens, where this has been um, a long-term legacy for people. Um, and again, I refer to, to other cases in, in the book. Um, and then, um, shortly after I returned from Sierra Leone, um, again, as I explain in the book, 
I had probably just finished my last pill because you have to take the um, the anti-malarials for a number of weeks after you leave the um, the theatre. I was um, on another duty in Kyrgyzstan. I just booked into a hotel. I had a room on one of the upper stories and I stepped out onto um, the veranda and I had this, well, it wasn't overwhelming because I'm still here, but this um, almost overwhelming desire to throw myself off the balcony with coherent thoughts going through my brain as to why not do it? It won't hurt when you hit the bottom. It'll be over in a flash. And I stepped back, closed the veranda windows, then, if you like, came back to my senses. And because I was a serving relatively senior officer in the army, I suppressed all public memory, if you like, of that event, because to have admitted that sort of behaviour um, would have lost me would have lost me my job effectively. Um, and over the coming years, I began to see the scale of the problem. I thought that it would be addressed by the senior echelons in the British Armed Forces, both on the medical side and on the command side, because quite clearly what I had discovered was that this was a drug that was dangerous, um, quite clearly incompatible with, with military use, even at the lower spectrum of the side effects. We don't want soldiers going into combat who are confused, who are restless, who have problems with anger management, um, problems with their vision, balance, and so on. Never mind the ultimate um, of the side effects, which lead into acts of violence um, or self-harm and ultimately suicide. And I had rather naively, I suppose, with hindsight, supposed that the Ministry of Defence, when this matter was brought to their attention, would say, we need to speak to you. Come and tell us there's a problem. But as the years passed and I left the army with my condition not pursued to um, any proper diagnosis, effectively what was going on was that um, there was a cover-up. And, of course, the cover-up may have been because of malpractice or it may have been because of incompetence. Who knows? Um, but it's not the state of affairs that you need inside a professional army, air force or navy. Um, and I discovered that for very good reasons, um, the drug was actually not being given to air crew either in the Army or in the Air Force, because of the risks um, presented to people in charge of, of aircraft, be they helicopters or um, fast attack aircraft. So why is it deemed sensible that a soldier with an assault rifle, um, somebody with a piece of artillery, or even in the Navy, the commander of a nuclear-armed submarine could be exposed to these sorts of drugs that we knew was too dangerous to give to the Air Force. 
So a few years um, after those events, I decided to, to leave the army. I did get one piece of advice before I left from a military doctor in a corridor who said, make sure you get as much of this onto your army records as possible. So I did. And as I explained in the book, um, I did have um, a range of, um, of visits to medical specialists who were thankfully on the one hand able to determine that I was not suffering from depression or any form of mental illness. But eventually, when all of the pieces came together from the various consultants, most of them being civilian, was that um, I was suffering from the long-term side effects of Larian. Um, and in my instance, the probably the most enduring aspect is that since I took my first Larian pill in 2002, I have not had an undisturbed night of sleep. And that's that's quite tricky. Mm -hmm. On the one hand, um, I suppose if you wanted to be flippant about it, I'm a sort of a Jekyll and Hyde, um, or perhaps even um, a vampire sort of character, in as much as I hope I appear normal and sane during the day. But I go to bed at night knowing that what unfolds during the night is going to be unpleasant. I've eventually come to terms with it, um, but hence the, um, the, the, the title for the book, If You Wake at Midnight. I usually don't try to go to sleep before midnight because it's not worth it. I will wake hour after hour. Um, but the other bit about the title, um, if you wake at midnight, um, you're probably familiar with um, with the term, them that asks no questions isn't told a lie. Um, and it's, um, it's from an old Rudyard Kipling poem. And that's what's at the heart of, um, of this, them that asks no questions. Don't ask questions about Larium. Um, because we don't want to find out the answers. And as I retired, and then I took up a, another career as, uh, as an archaeologist, um, I started to encounter more people, um, both civilians and veterans and their families, who had been as badly affected by this, or as you will see in the book, even more so, and probably the beating heart of the book, and that's that's a difficult phrase to use since we're we're talking about um, a suicide. Mm -hmm. But the beating heart of the book is Jane Quinn's story um, of that awful night in Scotland, when with their young family in in the house. Her husband, Cameron, who had recently left the army and had taken the drug, committed suicide. And it was the, it was the courage of Jane and her willingness to join a group that we made in the United Kingdom, but then also had contacts um, across the rest of the world. Um, it, was, it was her story and the others and a remarkable series of very brave women whose stories um, 
exposed in the book. Um, and others, like um, a retired warrant officer, um, David Remington, who tells his own story of a suicide. I, I give the, the, the chapter the title, Anatomy of a Suicide. Um, their courage, but also the way in which they had been abandoned by the institutions that should have looked after them. And that's what caused me eventually to write the book. Because although we'd managed to get um, Parliament interested and um, our Defence Select Committee, which is a little bit like a, a congressional inquiry in the United States, uh, the Defence Committee, uh, which is independent of, of government and, and party politics, uh, decided that they would have an investigation into this. Um, and what we uncovered during that process and what they uncovered showed a very unhealthy state of affairs. And I was rather hoping that, given that the select committee had said that the drug was too dangerous to use and said that the MOD should only ever use it as a last resort, and I will accept that in some cases it might be the only drug that is appropriate for one in 50,000. Um, or it might be necessary to use that particular drug as therapy as opposed to prophylaxis. So you can't rule it out altogether. Um, but it should have become a drug of last resort. What we also found during that process were a series of, well, I will use the word deceits, that were put up by ministers and others involved in this story in order to close it down. And having hoped that perhaps the outcome would have been a proper public inquiry, perhaps with evidence given on oath by all of those concerned, that should have been the next step. But it was perfectly clear that the government, um, the Ministry of Defence, the Department of Health and our, our drug regulators wanted to close this down. We don't want any further investigation. I think one of their incentives in trying to close this down was in order to suppress the story. Um, over here, um, if you want to take um, action against um, an institution or an individual for medical negligence, um, there is a serious restriction arising from our statute of limitations, which means that you can only bring a case for negligence within three years of the act of negligence or the first point at which you would have been aware of that. Um, and so the Ministry of Defence clearly has a vested interest in closing this down because there are hundreds, probably thousands, who have been dreadfully affected by this drug. Some who have committed suicide, some who have been involved in acts of self-harm, and others whose careers have simply fallen apart. Marriages that have um, that have been destroyed. And I know that this has happened also in, in the United States. Um, I think it was around about 2002, you had a series of, um, of unexplained murders at Fort Bragg, of which Larium seemed to be the common denominator. Um, and I believe it is still also thought entirely plausible, if not highly likely, that Staff Sergeant Bales 
um, who in Afghanistan, I think in 2012, went on that um, awful killing spree um, when 16 Afghan civilians were killed. So those were the, if, if you like, the, the inspirations for writing the book. Um, we needed to get the full story out. Um, and although in a few cases, such as mine, um, and to a certain extent, um, Dave Remington, who is the man who very courageously explained his own attempt at suicide. Um, the full stories have come out, but um, they haven't really been properly investigated. And until such time as we expose the full nature of this, people like Dave and others are now suffering in what we're calling over here trauma sanctuary. You have to tell a doctor what is wrong with you. The doctors are all encouraged, and certainly within the Ministry of Defence, almost forced to tell sufferers that this is not an illness or an injury from a neurotoxic drug. They are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Or worse, and I think you've experienced this as well, the doctors will often, particularly military doctors, will often try to ascribe the illness to an earlier childhood event. So you have invented um, sleep disorders that they claim that um, the child was suffering long before they enlisted in the armed forces. Um, and, and mothers who know best say <laughs> this is entirely untrue. Mm-hmm. So until such time as the syndromes are recognised for the injuries that they are, these people can't get proper treatment. And in fact, in many instances, the treatment is going to be counterproductive. Um, that happened with um, with a general. Um, he was one of the most decorated officers of his generation. Um, He had suffered uh, a traumatic um, brain injury while serving in the Balkans. Um, He should have been contraindicated to to Larium, but he's required to take it. Um, And he was suffering complex injuries, but also Larium injuries. But those would not be acknowledged. And he and many others are being put on entirely inappropriate treatment regimes and in some cases they are making them worse and potentially leading leading to deterioration and death and that's another rationale for putting the book out into the public domain it is um it is difficult reading in parts um and in fact, I I find when I have been proofreading or when I return to it, um, there are two or three chapters, uh, and you'll know which ones I'm referring to, um, where I have to stop and take a breath or go for a walk. Um, and that's been the response of, uh, of many of my colleagues who, who have read the book. Um, some have said, wow, you didn't take any prisoners there. But... Um, <laughs> and, Actually, I have been kind to quite a few people. Um, mm-hmm. But those who I have named, I have named for, for, for very good reason. Um, 
But this is a book that has moved some very hardened war veterans, um, whether they be infantry soldiers, um, air crew in fast attack aircraft, um, and each one of them, although they have been aware of the Larian problem, have said, my God, I never realized it was that bad. Yeah. As you're talking and I'm thinking, and as I read your book, you know, I'd heard about this and read about it, but I don't even think that the magnitude of it is even known because you mentioned how when you're in the army and the fear of losing your job. So imagine that you have, you know, suicidal thoughts or you're feeling, you know, these weird dreams and you're feeling aggressive. That's like you mentioned, you don't want to point those things out to your superiors because that could put you in a position of being, you know, let go or out. Um, So there's that. And then you're giving these people this medication that's causing all these horrific side effects. But until I read your book, it didn't dawn on me. We're also putting them in harm's way because they're expected to be in a very dangerous environment, to be in a calm state of mind, to react calmly. And, you know, I'm not a military person, but, you know, to defend themselves and others. And if there, if you mention your 60 seconds of not even knowing where you were in the car, imagine that happening out in the field for these. Like we have no idea how many soldiers have lost their lives out there as a result of not being 100% from these side effects. I think you're absolutely correct. And one of the other reasons that institutions um, in the United States, Canada and the United Kingdom do not want to have a look at this is that a lot of um, misdemeanors um, and acts ranging up to atrocities mm. are potentially going to be attributable to Larium. And you'll probably, I'm, I'm sure you'll be aware that um, in Canada there is an awful lot of controversy as to just exactly what it was that stimulated um, the events in Somalia that caused the Airborne Regiment to be disbanded. Um, It may have been multifaceted, Mm -hmm. but to rule out without any form of examination the likely, certainly highly plausible, contributory nature of larium, um, a psychotropic drug to those behaviours, even more so since um, General um, Romeo Dallaire, Um, who commanded the UN forces in Rwanda, Mm -hmm. has personally described his problems with the drug. And yet, we're not prepared to examine what has been going on. I would think that a number of our military problems that we have experienced in Afghanistan, Iraq, in, in Africa and possibly non-malarial areas because of the lingering and persistent nature of the drug will be because of that. And you're absolutely right. There will be tens of thousands yeah. um, of people who have been suffering from this and no one is going to be the first or very rarely will anyone say, I have some problems. I'm having nightmares. 
I thought of throwing myself throwing myself off a balcony. Um, I know exactly what the response would have been had I gone to my bosses and said, those are the sorts of thoughts that are going through my mind. Um, so that was why I went through a medical system that was as close as possible to the civilian one. Mm. So all of the various consultants that I saw were giving me coherent, thoughtful, considered opinions, as opposed to those that were coloured either by the, the services medical personnel Mm-hmm. or the chain of command. Um, and, and, it, and from your book, I could see that there was, I remember from reading it, it, it was just a, a very good advice that was given to you, I believe, by um, a physician in the military to make sure you really document this uh, um, as you go through the process of just noting what effects this drug had on you. Um, I just, while I was reading it though, I just couldn't help this kind of playbook that's used by in, you know, institutions and industry that, um, when there are very obvious, I mean, I think it was clear to you has, has other soldiers began to experience this from this drug. I remember parts of your book when, you know, other soldiers are warning, or I believe there was a French soldier who said, I'd never take that. You know, I would take this this other um, substitute. You shouldn't take that. Um, So there was this, and, and, you know, we've talked about it in one of the podcasts of this hunch that it was this drug that was doing it. Um, But just this idea that, you know, aside from all the other hurdles in making the connection that you're having an effect from the drug and then sharing this, um, especially when there's thoughts of suicide or thoughts of violence, you know, this just real demonization of the victim, you know, that it's an underlying illness, you know, going back in their medical history, um, it just becomes a real deterrent to having um, cohesion among those who were harmed. Um, because it's very difficult. It takes a very strong person. I just commend everyone you've wrote about, um, especially Jane, that you mentioned in your book, to pursue this and push forward. Um, and it seemed to me clear, and I just, there's so much to unpack here, but this whole issue um, that's, that seems to be one of the adverse effects of like the memory wipe um, with this drug Um, And in some cases in reading the book, I know yours was brief, but there appeared to be other um, victims that their memories did not come back, um, that they they lost parts of their lives um, due to this. Um, I was just fascinated because it appeared very clear to me the way that various institutions from your discussion about um, Guantanamo Bay, Um, studies that were done in the military, studies that were done in prisons um, by, you know, what appears to be government. Um, What do you, this is just your opinion, but do you think that was the interest in this drug and giving it to, um, you know, military or prisoners or whatever? 
do you think it was that memory issue that that was that they were looking at or i mean what was the fascination of this drug <laughs> you know with these groups yeah that's that's a question that is is unresolved um you very rightly point out the rather idiosyncratic nature in which this drug was developed in uh, a period that we were told had ended, but in the mid to the later part of the 20th century, when there were extraordinary breaches of medical and research ethics in order to develop anti-malarials. Um, and, and the culture that was developed in the 1940s, where anti-malarials um, were developed and tested on cohorts of prisoners in state penitentiaries who were quite clearly unable to give informed consent. Um, but also, um, and I'd never heard of this until I started doing the, the closer research, um, programs such as the US MK Ultra, um, the activities in the 50s and 60s when the US Army Chemical Corps um, and the CIA appeared and and the Walter Reed Research Institute appeared to have a sort of a Venn diagram encompassing each of those institutions um, on various pathways of research. And it appears quite clear that um, there was an attempt to develop some form of psychotropic drug which would be used um, either individually um, in interrogations, perhaps, or collectively in chemical warfare munitions um, to disorient an enemy. But it was quite clear that um, there were these researches going on, and it would appear that Larium popped out of one of these research programs. You know, it's given that um, Walter Reed serial number. Um, and as um, one of our um, doctors over here said, it is Larium or Mefloquin at the time was a progeny of one of these researchers. So it would appear that um, a drug that was potentially or a compound that was potentially being examined for its hallucinogenic um, properties was found to have anti-malarial properties. Um, and as we know, um, all of the intellectual property, because the Department of Defense can't um, go into um, marketing in, in, in the public, um, in order to bring this um, into production and sales that could be purchased by the, um, the US Department of Defense, it would appear that all the intellectual property and research papers were passed at no cost to Roche Pharmaceuticals. Um, so we don't know why the drug was originally developed, but we got some very strong clues. Um, but we were also assured during the, I think it was during the Carter presidency, when there was um, a congressional investigation into MK Ultra and the other activities uh, that were going on that um, 
the director of the CIA, said, this is all in the past. These experiments no longer occur. Well, what is going on, has gone on in Guantanamo Bay, appears to give the lie to that. Because to give inmates on arrival five times the normal prophylactic dose within 24 hours um, cannot be to treat malaria. Um, and the only plausible options are that this is a continuation of those programs of research on a literally captive cohort to observe their behaviours, or possibly as a form of chemical waterboarding. Mm -hmm. And that is not the sort of drug that we should be giving to the general public mm -hmm. or even the armed forces. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the... One of the lessons that I hope that will come out for people who do read the book is that we need to be a lot more interested in the origins of our drugs. And if a regulator, um, CDC, FDA, the MHRA over here, if they are not satisfied that they know how the drug has been developed and what its characteristics are, they should not license it. Um, and that this drug came to the market both in the United States and then in the United Kingdom, having avoided the normal phase three safety trials, is a national scandal. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know how many other instances of drug sales this would apply to. One of our podcasts, and I'm not sure if we've actually released that one, but we do talk about um, the randomized controlled trials and how they're farmed out. And, you know, you think when you're taking a medication that's approved by the FDA that they've done all those safety checks. But in reality, it's they're not specifically looking at all the side effects. There's only it's farmed out and they don't even actually see all the raw data. Um, so I think that it's a problem that's still continuing um, in now, you know, and um, people are getting these medications that aren't safe. And then that takes us back to uh, something that we've also talked about, which is informed consent. And, you know, these these people that were given this larium, like, how do they give informed consent when the whole gamut of side effects have not truly been studied? Surely they weren't told that, or like you mentioned, maybe they were told that it was rare, um, which is a word that they like to use a lot. Um, mm. But they they weren't they weren't given proper informed consent because I think a lot of them would have chosen potentially, like you said, the other less risk side of um, medication, or potentially like is it not even an option to just treat when you're sick, like? what is it absolutely necessary to have a prophylactic treatment instead of just treating those that actually get sick? Do well, you know? th that's um, a very interesting ethical and, 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 and legal matter. Um, I think that um, what the British Army has done in a number of instances um, 
by forcing the drug on individuals, um, they're not so much guilty of medical negligence. It's actually a form of assault that over here is legally termed as battery. If you make someone take a drug um, against their will or without informed consent, they are exposed to the charge of battery. Um, and this is another vulnerability that will exist within the MOD, and I'm sure that the MOD lawyers have, um, have been advising ministers that um, where it can be shown that soldiers have forcibly been given this drug or denied an alternative, um, there is a legal exposure that goes beyond simple medical negligence. Um, and there should be a right to say, I do not want to take this drug. And de facto, that was what was happening because so many, um, as we found out now, were sensibly throwing away their pills mm -hmm. rather than taking them. Um, had they been found out, um, they would probably have been subjected to internal military disciplinary procedures. Um, whether those were formal, whether they would have been records on their service which said that this individual is not appropriate um, for promotion, or whether they would have been unofficial, and for unofficial, read illegal punishments. Um, we found that in Sierra Leone in 2003, there was a battalion medical officer um, who was enforcing larium at the direction of the Surgeon General. So he was doing the Surgeon General's bidding. Um, but as a doctor, um, he has an ethical responsibility to his patients. And he should not have been part of a system that was forming up companies of soldiers, 120 strong, with a company sergeant major in front of them, watching them while they took their pills. And then, if anyone refused to take it, having what he called a name and shame board, where people were publicly exposed as allegedly putting unit cohesion at risk when they're looking after their own safety. Well, I would imagine, too, that there was some fear. You know, if you're, you're not told the real risks of the malaria versus the risks of the medication, there's the potential that you're coerced into even believing in, that you need it because of the fear of, of what would happen. Not, not that if you get malaria, there's actually a treatment available. You just would be sick and you would take this treatment right away. But the thing that happened, I think, um, to me with my daughter, and she didn't have valerium in this instance, it was a fluoroquinolone, but I was not informed of the side effects and what to watch for. And had I been informed of those side effects, I would have stopped it immediately, which is the proper um, response. So if they're not properly informed, if you have any nightmares, if you have any um, suicidal thoughts, like if they are not given all that information to stop, then they wouldn't even know when to stop to, pr to protect Yeah, themselves. but I think in, in this particular instance, and I think Andrew writes about that in his book, um, well, first of all, you're, you're not having informed consent in this context. I would argue even in our cases, the, I mean, even when it's not a military order, um, just 
for the general person, you know, being prescribed meds, there is a lot, not to the degree that you would have in the military, but there is a lot of ridicule if you have questions or want to know more about that drug, so much so that that type of, you know, antagonism to any any type of information becomes a real um, obstacle because generally, you know, you're having issues when you're seeing a doctor and you're you're hoping that whatever they can provide you will assist you in either preventing those issues or, you know, y- you don't think that the treatment is going to be the thing that really um, becomes the cause of your demise. And in many cases, it, it, it is. Um, so it, it's just amazing to me with this too, because, and, and this really hit me, um, in, in, you know, going through, um, something similar with a family member is that when you really look at the labeling and Andrew, you talk about this in your book. I mean, if these indications, nightmares, anxiety, um, the host of potential adverse effects, if, if they're present, the drug should be stopped. Hmm. And it appears to me that these soldiers, that was never even discussed. And they continued to receive that drug. Um, it sounds like for weeks and months and however long it was necessary to keep taking larium. Um, and, and you talk about that a lot in your book because I believe in the manufacturer's labeling that that was there initially that if these indications occur to stop, stop its use, um, but they were never followed. And it didn't appear that any of, any of the powers that be or the physicians followed that protocol. Um, You're touching on a really interesting thread regarding the responsibilities of the manufacturers. Um, What I discovered um, was that Companies like Roche produce different warning labels and different patient information leaflets, it appears dependent on the legal jurisdiction within which they're selling the drug. So the the warnings in the United States were different to those offered to the United Kingdom. Um, and a key aspect of the of the side effects of um, of larium is that many of these side effects are what we call prodromal. Um, a prodrome, as you probably know, is a warning of a much more serious event. Mm-hmm. And if you suffer from one of these prodromal side effects, you have to stop taking the drug immediately because it could be the only warning that something much more serious may happen. Mm-hmm. Um, now. In the UK, Roche withdrew that prodromal warning. Um, and while I was taking the drug, prodromal had been removed from both the patient information leaflet and the summary of product characteristics that the doctors would have been referring to. And it was only reinstated in about 2013 after we started to bring this to um, attention in the, in the British media. Um, so pharmaceutical companies appear to be able to produce warnings that are different, more related to 
their legal vulnerability in different jurisdictions around the world rather than the patients that they should be protecting. So I had a team of um, Americans, British and Canadians in West Africa. We were all taking the same drug, but apparently for the Canadians and the Americans, some of these symptoms were prodromal, but not for us. Of course, that's an insustainable position. And years later, it was reinstated, um, probably partly because of um, what we were putting into the into the press and the television at that time. Mm-hmm. But also, I noticed that um, there had been an audit of um, Roche's um, PILs and SPCs at around that time, and they had found to be deficient in a number of cases. So I suspect there was probably a lot of um, hasty housekeeping going on mm-hmm. at, um, at Roche Pharmaceuticals in order to bring these up to date. And mm-hmm. with these with these big major companies, um, it is extraordinary that they are allowed to get away with it. Um, and particularly in the case of Roche UK, because... When Roche was um, applying for a change to its license um, in order that the, the pill could be prescribed on a weekly basis as opposed to a fortnightly basis, um, they gave an assurance to our regulators that um, all of the drug warnings would be harmonised worldwide. Um, not only that, um, the Centre for Harmonising was actually the Roche UK outfit um, just north of London. And yet we seem to be the last to put back in the the prodromal warnings. And I wonder how casual other pharmaceutical companies may be um, with their own products. And also, when you're talking about um, quinolines or fluoroquinolones, um, whether there is a uniformity across the different manufacturers of the drugs. Um, because I guess that there will be a number of institutions, both within North America and worldwide, who are creating similar, almost identical drugs, but potentially with completely different um, different warnings right. um, and discretion left to the drug manufacturer as to whether there should be a boxed warning until mm-hmm. the likes of us and you... Um, draw it to people's attention, usually after there has been an awful tragic event. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then they bring their papers up to date. Well, um, it seemed to us, um, just going on the fluoroquinolones that we have knowledge of from our cases, but the black box warning came so many years later, and it really was a lot of people that had to go forward. But they estimate that it's only 1%, um, you know, a very low percentage of um, cases of adverse drug reactions that actually get reported and documented in order to make those changes. Um, It seemed in the U.S., the labeling, from my understanding, and Heather would know more, if the drug company labels a side effect, then they can't be liable as long as they have it. So they're... It seemed to me like every time something comes up new, they do add it, but it's just buried in a pile of stuff that the patient would never see and some doctors would never read. 
mm. the problem. Yeah. And, and I think in our cases, like when you look at the fluoroquinolones and the lawsuits and kind of, you know, this has been going on for so long, the fact that it took till 2015, 16 to get some labeling that addresses the issue and the permanency of the issue of taking these drugs has, you know, there's still a belief by, or a, a, a misconception, even when you talk to physicians that if you, if you quit taking the drug, these, these, um, adverse effects don't continue, you know, that, that, that there's, there's this relationship that they they don't extend after you stop taking the drug, which we know is certainly, um, not accurate. But I think um, we, you know, in our situation with that, I, I just, it's a hard one to unpack with these drugs because you can't, you just can't help but think that, I mean, the ish, a lot of these issues are if you kind of follow the money, um, you know, I hate to say it that way, but it's, you know, when you really look at this, um, shortly after, um, the hearings we had in the States for the fluoroquinolones, um, shortly after that, um, the drug our children took, Leviquin, um, the um, manufacturer, the drug company quit making it. And then it goes generic. And of course, if it's a generic drug, you're really in trouble because mm. um, there's there's mm. no cause of action mm. then um, against the the drug maker at that mm. point. Mm. Um, so there's all kinds of kind of... Mm. Ways that I think industry is able to navigate this, um, but the fact that it it takes so so very long, and that really um, brings it back to in terms of you know the effects. I'm just really curious because I know that um, Andrew, you you're in contact with a lot of soldiers, um, those who took this drug, and supporting them and. Um, just being an advocate for them. Um, and a lot of this, I, I, you know, I'm reading your book that really made sense too. It's labeled has PTSD, um, regardless of what the drugs our yeah. children took and, and, um, Larry, um, you know, how they have in common. It is very clear when you're dealing with, um, neuropsychiatric or what a layperson would call mental health issues, um, there's always this um, default that that is some um, underlying illness. And I think that's why the kind of scapegoat for all this is PTSD. And how could anyone argue that a military um, person, especially someone in combat, um, didn't experience that type of stress? And I think legally that's what really um, dilutes um, the situation and scares I know in the States, you know, it's, it's, is this an underlying illness? Is this from the, from the drug? But what I'm really curious about is I know a lot of these are just attributed to, um, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, conveniently for that, the, um, industry has a lot of other drugs to treat that condition. I'm just curious in your experience in working with sol soldiers who have gone through this, um, I just know from my son being given more drugs for treatment of this so-called underlying illness were really um, 
just hasten the pathway to his demise because once you've had a, a you know a toxic reaction to a drug the last thing you need is to to pile on a bunch of additional psychotropic drugs or mood stabilizers or anti-anxiety drugs to treat it's just not that's not what they need i'm just curious if you could talk a little bit i mean how have how have these soldiers fared? I mean, how have, how have they moved forward? Is it, are, are they receiving that type of treatment or, you know, no, how do they move forward? Yeah. Unfortunately, generally speaking, no is the answer. Um, and that is, that is the tragedy. Um, whenever a veteran presents to his to his civilian doctor now um the civilian doctors large many of them will never have heard of larian um mm-hmm. because they now largely no longer prescribe it um but they are all encouraged when i say that they the medical professionals are all encouraged to guide people down the ptsd route it's simple it's also um, coming back to the phrase that you used a few minutes ago, it is also following the money because that is where all of the research is. I don't wish to be dismissive of people who are doing good research into um, a psychiatric disorder that needs treatment, but it cannot be the be-all and end-all. It is very much in vogue at the moment. It is also what attracts all practically all of the research funding mm. in this field and particularly research funding that comes from the Ministry of Defence. So if you are a researcher in psychiatry or mental illnesses or whatever in institute institutions such as um, King's College, um, you can submit a research proposal that will try to advance our understanding of PTSD and you will attract funding from all sorts of sources. If you were to suggest that um, you might want to do some research to look at the impact of neuropsychiatric and neurotoxic drugs on the behaviours of people, you will attract none. Um, and there is an institutional close down um, on this. Some of it is cultural, but some of it is deliberate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, um, at the height of the problem that we were bringing into the into the public a few years ago, um, the then Secretary of State for Health in the British government, who had been at the top of the medical tree on the civilian side of this and in the governance side, um, left government one day, and the following day, he took up an appointment with Roche Pharmaceuticals. Mm. Now, as long as we have this sort of merry-go-round between the pharmaceutical industry and politicians and then those who are in the legislature and in the executive, we won't have proper ethical investigations. And very sadly, um, that then goes down into the area where a lot of veterans would seek help, which are our military charities. And you'll you'll have your equivalents, um veterans and so on. Mm. Um we have 
Royal British Legion here, Help for Heroes, all sorts of organisations that do sterling work. But you will not find a single entry on their websites related to larium or neurotoxicity. Um, and they are encouraged um, either financially or culturally or because of the entrees that they will get um, or the psychiatrists who are leading these debates um, to simply go down the PTSD route. Um, and that's the tragedy. And that's why people like Dave Remington, um, who still needs help, but my goodness, he's doing some superb work. I can't imagine the number of people that Dave Remington has pulled back from the edge from a Facebook or a Twitter engagement or going and putting an old Sergeant Majorly arm around the shoulder and saving the man. Um, so there are going to be hundreds of people um, who are institutions, who have ended up in institutions such as prisons, who are sleeping rough or whatever, um, who don't have PTSD. They are suffering from an illness, an injury that is attributable to a drug that was given to them by the Ministry of Defence. Um, and until such time as we break the logjam open, and perhaps my book will appear on the desks of ministers who can read it, um, and going back to where we started, what was the motivation for the book? It's to tell the story in all of its aspects, in all of its cold facts, and show what has happened. And if they believe that I'm not telling the truth, well, get in contact with me. Let's have the discussion. Yeah. Um, the book has now been out for two and a half months. I haven't heard anything from any minister, any senior officer in the Surgeon General's department or in the command. Um, not surprising. Um, I think you, probably, you, you may recall when B. Coldwell, one of the other women who shares her story, mm -hmm. she says that um, she was at um, an event, a social event, and she happened to meet the then chief of the defence staff. Um, and they got to talking about Larium. And he said, I'm afraid this is something I can't do anything about until I retire. Mm -hmm. Why would that be? Um, mm -hmm. Of course, he is now long since retired and we haven't heard a thing from him. Um, but until we break that logjam, we won't have the recognition of the illness. And people well, like Dave Remington... Yeah. Hopefully, um, your book is going to create, you know, hopefully lots of people will read it and you'll get more awareness. And with that comes more people and hopefully more voices. Um, and that may be, that may be, and I wouldn't be surprised that the more people that talk about and read your book, the more people that will, it will resonate with them. That's exactly what happened to me. I know that's been the case with us will mention something and somebody's like, I have all those symptoms. I think I took that medication too, you know, so <laughs> you'll probably more people, it will come. And I mean, I just loved reading your book, incredibly sad story, but a story that needs to be told and hopefully will bring volumes and make change. Um, 
So yeah, it's just been wonderful. Well, and and you. also Andrew, I mean, has an archaeologist. I'm sure you're aware of this, but you've left your mark. I mean, I I know on days when I get really discouraged with all this, having lost a son, um, to what I have uncovered has indifference, corruption, um, just a total disregard of of human dignity and and just in reading this book these are people good 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 people who wanted to serve their country you know this is not the way they should have been treated you know it's 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 just it's 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 unreal that this would not be addressed but when you look at the close relationship between you know, in industry and our governmental institutions. Um, you mentioned just the recycling in the states. We have, you know, the half FDA is head of the FDA one year, and the next year they're head of a, a major drug company. Yeah. You know, what what is that telling us about, you know, the mission of those agencies, which is to protect us um, and to ensure our safety? Um, it, it's disheartening. But um, you writing this book, you know, Lee and I trying to kind of speak out, um, trying, I know, you know, you reference in your book, you tried to use the court system, very difficult, very difficult to find attorneys willing to put the work in um, to bring these cases, and um, a very, um, very difficult very difficult procedural requirements that, that, you know, whether it's a statute of limitations here in the States, we only have two years, you know, is, is our statute of limitations. So there's definitely um, rationale for those, for those, you know, time, (laughs) you know, time limitations to, to really ensure that a lot of, you know, these cases and people's stories never make it to the surface and really um, make sure that there can be no justice to be had in those circumstances. So I just really want to commend you because I think what we can do, and that's the purpose of what Lee and I, you know, are trying to do to get people's stories out, is they have to be told and they have to be documented. You know, we'll do whatever we can. We were fortunate. Um, and I think in my case, it was because it was my own son um, in regards to bringing lawsuits, you know, just you have to be relentless, hmm. you know, because there is so much intimidation and so much um, personal attack on those who try to bring these cases. And I'm sure that you have um, felt that type of attack in <laughs> In, in, in pursuing getting this, you know, these stories out. So I just, yeah, I just really want to commend you. The book is exceptional. I would encourage um, everyone to, to read it. It's certainly um, disturbing, um, but it's a story that needs to be told. And it's still going on. I mean, mm-hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, Andrew, but it's, I mean, people are still receiving larium. Is that correct? They are. The the Ministry of Defence gives it to a small number. Um, They are required to present to Parliament a six-monthly review. Um, I think they're probably 
backsliding on that a bit. The numbers are right down, but it almost seems like a perverse intention just to ensure that a few people get it because they can. Um, as a drug of last resort, mm. it should hardly be mm-hmm. on the radar at mm-hmm. all. Um, it's largely discontinued, and of course, um, Roche have, um, have have abandoned it. Um, but mefloquine, the generic, um, mm-hmm. the MOD, I think, still wants to show that they are giving it, um, mm. partly, as I say, because I think they can, um, and a sort of perverse desire just to continue doing it to show that they had some sort of um, justification for issuing it in the first place. So, mm-hmm. yeah, rather like a child's behaviour, um, yeah, when it's admonished, yeah, the child will then just continue to push a little bit and just do a few more naughty things mm-hmm. to validate their, their actions. Um, mm. We need something a little bit more grown up from, from our major institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it's, it's sort of finally is that um, I mentioned the, the motto of our military academy, which is serve to lead. That's where there have been so many failures. Our officers are meant during their service, having been trained at the academy at Sandhurst to lead and that's what our service is about Mm -hmm. Um, and as I left the army I realised that I was still part of if you like the officer institution and there would be veterans and their families out there saying why don't they do something well I'm still part of the they I'm still part of the institution I still feel a responsibility Mm -hmm. um and that should not be abandoned. And I rather hope that um, a few consciences will be will will be pricked by by what I have said. Um, and we never do this again, um, either with larium, with any of the drugs that you're dealing with, mm-hmm. or God forbid, the next generation anti-malarial tefenoquine, which is a compound equally as bad. Yeah. That that was disheartening to read that in your book. I think it was, um, was it Jane who had a quote regarding that in yeah. your book, regarding yeah. just what lies ahead and fearing the future more. So, well, Andrew, I just want to thank you for joining us. Such an honor to meet you and um, really gives, I know I could say personally my, for myself, you give me the motivation to keep going with this, you know, because I think we all know um, whether this issue has touched us individually or our family members, our loved ones, it's, it's not an easy path. You know, it's, it's not an easy path. And um, it's just, like I said, a real pleasure. Gave me the momentum to, Push well, a little I'm, harder. <laughs> so. I'm very grateful to to both of you for the for the opportunity and the the invitation mm-hmm. to speak. Um, and it is one of the positives out of these dreadful excursions that we have to to do is that um, along the way you meet some really inspirational people, mm-hmm. and you are two that I will add to the group that I've been privileged to work with in 
the Larium story. Mm-hmm. And I find your work equally inspirational. And thank you for, for what you're doing. Well, that's very thank kind. You. And thank you so much. So we will have the link to your book on our website. Um, so we will hopefully help you attract more people thank to you. your cause. Thank you. Get the book. I have it right here. <laughs> get the book. <laughs> yes, get the book. <laughs> thank you for joining us today on this episode of No Risk. And remember, being your own expert is the best way to prevent yourself or your loved one from being harmed. And please join us for future podcasts and help support us by subscribing, providing some feedback, and of course, giving us a five-star rating. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at No Risks, and check us out on our website at norisks.org, where you can read our stories, suggest future topics, and share your stories.